Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, the Emergencies Act is over. Most of the testimony we're interested in is done. Policy experts from here on out. Did we learn anything, though? Seniors, are they next for RSV? It's not just kids that get affected. Usually it's kids, then seniors. And we'll tell you about a new tourism opportunity being offered by Jamaica, Magic Mushrooms. We'll have details. So as I said, the the testimony that I think most people were interested in at the Emergency Act inquiry has wrapped up now, but it's not over. Now we're going to hear from 50 or 60 different policy experts, and they'll sort of be speaking in terms of, you know, the legality and the intelligence issues and the policing issues and just sort of that kind of information will be given to the commissioner. But as I said, you know, the testimony of convoy participants and um, law enforcement and government uh, officials has now wrapped up. And the commissioner of the Emergencies Act inquiry uh, says he's confident that he can deliver a decision. Paul Rollo listened to, you know, six weeks of testimony, if you can believe it. Uh, now he has the task of trying to decide whether or not the Trudeau government was justified in invoking the act in response to the convoy that took over downtown Ottawa last February. He must also determine if the powers that the act unleashes were used appropriately after it was invoked. And he has to try and also, and I think this may be the hardest part, he has to try and determine some kind of official record of what actually happened, a timeline, if you will, a chronology. I think that could be almost impossible to do because there's so much disagreement. But let's find out what we learned, if we learned anything, um, and if we're any farther ahead than we were and it all got started, we're going to chat with Aaron Woodrick, who is the director of the McDonald laurie Institute's Domestic Policy Program. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, always a pleasure to be here, Shay. Yeah, so the commissioner says, you know, he's heard enough. He can make his determination. He's confident. Took six weeks. Do you think that a clear picture emerged? Were the questions we went in asking answered? Boy, you know, you said off the top that he's got an almost impossible task ahead of him. I, I agree. I don't envy what he has to uh, come up with by February, no less. He doesn't have six months or a year to figure this out. Um, look, he says he's got all he needs. Um, <clears throat> that made me raise, <clears throat> excuse me, made me raise my my eyebrow a little bit because I don't think the public has what it needs. We didn't hear the answer to the question: Is what is the legal test the government used? Um, you know, there's a law in the books. There's a threshold that has to be met. Based on the law, the reading of the words, they didn't meet that test. But throughout the testimony, they hinted that they had a different view of that. They had a different legal advice saying they had yeah. to meet a lower threshold. We didn't hear what that is. Um, it may be the case that Justice Rouleau knows because there's there are some documents and some evidence that is not available to the public. That's very unusual, of course, because when you have these public inquiries, the whole point is to make the self public. So I'm hoping he has more. I'm hoping he can make a better decision. But in terms of what the public knows, we really don't have much more in front of us than uh, when this whole thing started. Let's talk about that for a second, Aaron, because you're right. The, the government says they did have a, a legal opinion saying it was justified and it was something that they should do, but they're citing basically client-lawyer privilege, right? Saying we yeah. can't disclose it? 
Yeah, that's exactly it. Now, they've waived other forms of privilege. So, for example, there's texts between ministers, there's information from cabinet deliberations. So they've made a big show of saying we're being very transparent, we're waiving privilege. That's true, except they haven't waived it for the single <laughs> most important thing that we need. I mean, how can you how can you properly analyze whether a government has met a legal test if they won't tell you what the test is? I mean, basically, they're saying trust us, and that was the title of an op-ed I wrote on this on Friday. They're just saying, just, 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 saying, just trust me. Um, you know, we have advice that was sound, and we followed it. And that's sort of the end of the discussion. And you're saying, and I guess you're right, maybe uh, they, uh, the commissioner will say, you know, what I've seen, the, the legal advice they were given. But I mean, like you're saying, it, this is about trust. This is about transparency. Even if he came out and said, don't worry, I was given that. We just can't release it publicly. No one's going to believe that anyhow. Well, no. And what's the point of having the inquiry, yeah. right? I mean, if, if the whole uh, if it comes down to a government saying, well, we had our reasons, you'll just have to trust us. We should have just not bothered with the last six weeks. And I think the broader point, too, and this gets lost in the politics of it, right? Because so many people are just obsessed with whether this hurts the Trudeau government or helps yeah. them. And my point is that that's completely irrelevant from a law standpoint. The question this needs to answer is, was the law broken? I mean, what the what the consequences of that are, are you know, the secondary to me, it's we need to discuss. Discover, we need to uncover and establish whether the government broke its own law or not. That, to me, is the single most important part of this inquiry. You mentioned consequences, and I've had some people ask me uh, here on the show in terms of, okay, so let's say the commissioner comes back and says, you know what, there was no reason to invoke this law. It was done inappropriately. It shouldn't have been done. There's no consequences. It's not like the prime minister loses his job over this, right? Is anybody held to account? How does that work? Yeah, it really comes down to the democratic process, right? I mean, uh, and that's why I think it's important is that, it, you know, the public will have to pass judgment on whether or not they care that the government broke its own law. Now, I'm very troubled by this because I, I, all the evidence to me over sort of the last 10 years is that people seem to be very upset when the law is broken if it's for a cause they don't support. Yes. But if it is the cause they do support, they're kind of like, yeah, well, what's the big Had deal? To be done. Yeah. <laughs> it's extremely dangerous, Shay. And I think a lot of people are not thinking past the end of their own nose when they say this, is that if you're only going to be concerned about the law being followed when it's used against people you don't like, um, that, I mean, just it's it, it, you don't have to think too hard about some Someday there will be a future government that you maybe don't like if you like the one today, and it's going to be an, a different issue. Um, if they start using this principle, you're really not going to like the consequences. So I think it's important to always say, look, the law needs to be followed, whether it's applied against our friends or enemies. It always needs to be applied the same way. Otherwise, we don't really have rule of law anymore. To that end, the commissioner says part, he, he recognizes that this whole process, the convoy, the Emergencies Act, the inquiry has been deeply divisive, and he feels mm-hmm. it's his job to try and heal some of that division um impossible impossible i mean he can't do that can he I don't think he can. I mean, I think really what he can do is try and give the most objective view of what actually happened um, based on all the evidence he's heard. The other thing, too, which I think is important is going forward, there's been a lot of talk about do we need to change the Emergencies Act, right? Yes. Remember, the act itself was a revised version of the War Measures Act, which came out in 1970. And I think now is another opportunity to update this law. Um, look, some people want to make it easier to use these powers. I make the opposite case. I think that, if anything, this this type of law is 
so unusual. It really is a nuclear option. It needs to be tightened up so that there's no ambiguity that's only ever used in the absolute most extreme circumstances. So that's another debate that's going to be coming, and I think um, it's important that we uh, we get that balance right. As far as the testimony that we did here, of course, the Prime Minister on the stand on Friday, very closely watched, and again, like everything regarding this, depending on you know what side you align with, either it was a disaster for the PM or it was a raving success for the Prime Minister. I mean, what did you take out of what he had to say on Friday? Well, look, I actually think he did very well as a witness on a stand, right? As a lawyer, um, you know, who, who's cross-examined witnesses. I think he performed very well. In fact, I think he explained things and many things better than some of his own ministers and own advisors did. So he was very well prepared. So my hat's off to him for that. But the performance is different than sort of did we learn anything substantive, right? Um, the performance he gave was sort of confident, thoughtful. In fact, I, I wish he would talk this way more when he was giving press conferences uh, in regular times. But we didn't get Get the answers to the key questions, such as things like, you know, what was the legal test yeah. that you relied on? The other thing I found that was troubling, and, and, and a number of other ministers did this, was he sort of used these hypotheticals, right, where he would say, well, you know, um, you know, what if I didn't use the act? What if, what if? And, and of course, in the what if scenarios, the situation is always some disaster scenario. And my rebuttal is, well, what if you didn't use it and nothing happened, right? I mean, yeah. it, it, it's easy to always say, well, if I didn't do this, the worst thing in the world would have happened. But you know what? It's equal plausible that wouldn't have happened and so really you're just you're building up a straw man um sort of disaster scenario argument so look i think i think an objective observer would say he was a well-prepared witness um he he didn't uh, he didn't look out of sorts up there he seemed at, at peace with the thoughts but in terms of actually getting to the truth getting getting important answers and answering these questions about the whole purpose of the inquiry we really didn't get very much out of it did we get anything else Anywhere else, was there any other testimony that you sort of watched and went, well, wait a minute, this is important, Like, be it from somebody who was involved in the convoy, somebody who was in law enforcement, one of the other government ministers, was there a moment at all where you sort of said, oh, wow, that's enlightening, okay, that that's important? Yeah, I think it started uh, uh, the middle of last week when we had uh, Jody Thomas, who is the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor, and she sort of was the first one to hint that the government was using a different threshold uh, for what constitutes a, na- a threat to the security of Canada. That was new to me, and that sort of that was my aha moment because for many weeks and even before the inquiry, I'd been wondering, well, how's the government going to prove it met this test under the law? Because they t- they haven't really let any evidence. And the answer is, based on Jody Thomas and a bunch of other witnesses, well, they basically came up with a different test. That's how. They weren't going to meet the threshold that the Emergencies Act says. Um, they were going to make up their own their, their own threshold. They were going to meet that test. And of course, then I was waiting to see, well, when will they tell us what that test yeah. is? And we never got there. So that is where I sort of realized, ah, they were never going to meet the, the test we expected them to meet all along. They were basically going to say, we have our own. And uh, you know what? You're just going to have to trust us because we can't tell you what it is. Um, This remaining testimony that's coming from policy experts and all the rest, how important is that? I imagine if you're the commissioner, that would be pretty good. I mean, you want to have a pretty clear understanding of what the law says, what, you know, I mean, this is just as important as the testimony to him, but to the public, do you think it is? No, it's not. And these are people who don't have direct um, a link to the protest, yeah. right? And I haven't looked at the witness. I mean, some of these folks, for example, are international types. So they're really going to be talking more about the types of laws, um, you know, in their own countries, what, what similar characteristics they have. So this may get a little wonky for a lot of people. I hope it's helpful to uh, Justice Rouleau. Um, but the sort, of, uh, the sort of dramatic moment has passed with the prime minister's sort of grand finale uh, appearing on Friday. All right, Aaron, we always appreciate your insight. Thanks so much for joining us today.
So the crush at Alberta Children's Hospitals continues as more and more and more kids get sick. Uh, This weekend it was announced that a heated trailer would be set up at the Children's Hospital in Calgary. Now, it's not to be used for treatment or anything like that. In fact, they may not use it at all. Um, But the emergency department there is so busy, they don't want people to have to wait outside in the cold should the waiting room fill up. So this heated trailer would be an option. Not saying that's good. I mean, we're, we know without a shadow of a doubt that our hospitals right now, especially our children's hospitals, are absolutely swamped. All of the major ones, I'm talking Edmonton and Calgary, have both come out recently and said, that's it. That's it. We're at, we're at capacity. We, we're just totally swamped by all the kids that are getting sick. It's because of a trio of viruses, as we've talked about here, that are wreaking havoc, right? You've got COVID, you've got the flu, and RSV. And while it's hitting kids really hard right now, there's obvious concern. What's next? It's It doesn't just stay in kids when we're talking about RSV. That's the concern. We're going to chat now with Dr. Samir Sinha, who is the Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health and University Health Network in Toronto. Doctor, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. So this RSV, I mean, we're talking about for the past few weeks about what it's doing with kids, but, but this is not a child-specific virus, of course, right? I mean, it can affect other people. Yes, for a lot of people, they're hearing about RSV for the first time, but this is a virus that's been living with us and tends to affect us every season, but uh, not usually to this magnitude. And it's a virus, as you said, that not only affects children, but also people of all ages. But it's most the most vulnerable to it are young children who've especially never been exposed to it and older adults whose immune systems weaken with time. Okay, that makes perfect sense. So when we talk about this, like like you say, I mean, I had small kids, and I know at least one of them had RSV at one point. So, And you're right, if you have small kids, you might be familiar with this. Um, and it is seasonal, and it would happen every year. But this year, obviously worse. How much worse? And do we have any idea why it's so much worse? Yeah, we're seeing this issue with not only RSV, but the flu this year as well, because a lot of the measures that we've all been taking for the last few years to uh, really control COVID by physically isolating ourselves more than usual, wearing masks, getting, you know, doing all these different things have actually allowed us to actually suppress other usual respiratory viruses that would usually spread, especially in crowded or indoor settings or during the school year, um, and especially when it uh, when the fall and winter seasons come and, and we're more likely to be indoors with each other. So we really kind of actually had really no flu season for the yeah. last two years. Um, we, we had a little bit of RSV uh, come back earlier this year, for example, but nothing to this level now that we're seeing not only, you know, flu and RSV at record levels, levels that we haven't seen in years, but uh, but we're having all three of these viruses, including COVID, wreak havoc at the same time. Why? Uh, I guess it's just the state of the immune system when you're talking about the very young and the very old. They're sort of in the same category when it comes to immune response? Yeah, so so really that if you've had a previous infection of the flu or if you've gotten vaccinated uh, previously, then with time, you start developing some protection that will protect you against further flu seasons. That's why we recommend that people get their annual influenza vaccination. That's why we recommend that people get their COVID-19 you know, boosters, for example. But RSV is one of those viruses that it's common. 
We unfortunately don't have a vaccine against it. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of us have had RSV infections multiple times during our lives. But it's particularly nasty for young children who've never been exposed to RSV before. That first infection usually is the one that more likely can land you in hospital um, and very, very sick. And that's why with two years of children um, who've been masking and doing other things, um, we now have a whole onslaught of kids who are getting this this virus for the very first time. And that's why we're seeing so many crowded children's hospitals at the moment, because so many are being exposed for that first occasion, um, getting, and unfortunately, about 1% will get sick um, and and will potentially land in hospital as well. Right, because, I mean, not everybody is affected to the same extent, right? Some people can sort of get through it okay, but others will find themselves, as you say, very, very ill. Yeah, the vast majority of people who get a virus like RSV, um, they just shake it off. It's not too big a deal. The challenge is, is that because we've had these shortages of cold and flu medications, some people can't manage their symptoms as well as they otherwise would, and that might make them sicker and land them in hospital. And we know that for young children in particular, under two, who've never been exposed, we know that that is the group uh, of children uh, that when they're, they have that very first infection, they might actually get really sick. For older adults, the reason why um, RSV is the number one killer, um, you know, where, where it actually kills um, and, uh, and sees lots of uh, sickness and illness, tends to be actually in our older population, hmm. just like flu, just like COVID. And the reason that happens every year is because older adults may have just naturally more weakened immune systems, but they might also be living with chronic diseases that can flare up when they get quite sick. That's why it's important for them uh, to get vaccinated, especially against the things that they can get vaccinated against. But also we have to be mindful that during cold and flu season, what can we do to protect older people in our lives from getting infected because if they get sick, they could be really, really sick and die. And is it all the same things? I mean, we should know the drill by now with dealing with viruses, right? We've all gone through it for three years. Is it those things, the hand washing, the social distancing, staying home if you're sick, same old, same old? Same old, same old. And right now, we're actually recommending that people consider wearing a mask if they're indoors, yep. especially in crowded indoor settings, because, again, you don't know what's circulating out there. Uh, and uh, And the last thing you want is, Okay, I've got this runny nose, is uh, or I got this, you know, cough down wheeze. Is it RSV? Is it COVID? Is it flu? The best things you can do to try and eliminate, you know, what it could be is do all those things. You know, wear a mask. You know, get vaccinated against the things you can because the last thing you want to do is ruin your holiday season by landing up in hospital or getting really, really sick. Because especially right now, biggest concern we have is with these three viruses circulating. People are actually getting infected with two or more things Ooh. at the same time. And then that can be a real doozy. And as you said, no vaccine for RSV right now. But last week, um, there was a submission put forward to Health Canada saying we might have one. What do we know about that? I mean, I don't think it's going to help in the short term, but, but maybe. I mean, are you optimistic? Very optimistic, actually. We have a number of different vaccine manufacturers who've been working on these vaccines for years. Um, and the promising uh, data that's coming out is, is actually pretty cool. So right now, the, the real focus is on getting vaccines ready for older populations who are the ones who are most likely to get sick and die. But there's also an application that's being considered, I believe, uh, for for children as well. It's not going to be something that can be approved right now. These trials are still going on. But we're hoping as early as next year, we'll have an additional vaccine against an additional common, you know, cold and flu season uh, virus 
that we can have some added protection against. But as you said, right now, what we're saying for everybody is before we might have a vaccine for RSV, what you can do today to protect yeah. yourself and your family is, you know, the same old, same old, you know, washing your hands, uh, staying home if you're sick, um, you know, wearing a mask uh, and uh, and getting vaccinated against the things you can get vaccinated against. Any idea where we are within this quote unquote wave? Is it, is it getting better? Is it, uh, I mean, are we reaching a peak or wh- wh- what do we expect is going to happen in the coming weeks and months? Well, the thing is I remind people is that flu season starts in about November and it goes until April. So we're just kind of at the beginning of what could be a really unpredictable season. I think it's too early to say whether we peaked, for example. We know right now, we we know that lots of young children have been affected. We know that soon we're going to see more adults and then older adults. It usually kind of happens in waves like this. So we're, we're anticipating that it's going to be a long winter ahead. Uh, and that's why we're just saying right now, we're certainly not out of the woods. Um, you don't see any of the hospitals in Edmonton or Calgary or anywhere else in Alberta saying, yep, don't worry about it. Next week, we should be fine. Everybody is really nervous about what the season will be ahead. And that's why we're just encouraging the public to do what you can, yeah. stay healthy and safe and protect each other. Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, magic mushrooms are having a bit of a moment, aren't they? We've talked about them a few times here on the show, um, primarily around how they're being used by certain uh, therapists and doctors in our country to treat all kinds of different ailments. I mean, they've been around forever, of course, um, but the natural psychedelics now being used in all kinds of medical treatments legally here in Canada in some cases. Um, in other places, they're becoming part of a tourism campaign, a resort chain in Jamaica is offering what they call mystical experiences and stress relief with, let's call it a magic mushroom getaway. Here to tell us all about it, we have Justin Townsend calling from Jamaica. He is the CEO of Myco Meditations. Justin, thanks for your time. I appreciate you being here. Hello, Shane. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, really, really interesting. First things first, we should, we should establish your magic mushrooms are not and have never been illegal in Jamaica, right? So to make this move is not really that difficult for you guys in Jamaica. That's absolutely correct, yes. No illegality at all. So uh, the way that this is being marketed, this is not about going down and, and getting wrecked on mushrooms for a week. This is a, a health and wellness approach you're taking to this, correct? Absolutely correct. It's not about a recreational retreat um, at all. So we have um, a therapeutic model here. We run between 40 and 50 retreats every year, around about three to four retreats per month. Each retreat consists of a cohort of 12 individuals that come from all over the world, but primarily from America um, right now. And uh, each retreat is about seven days long and consists of three dosing sessions with mushrooms and then the following day backed up by group therapy as well. And in line with that therapeutic model, our team members consist of psychiatrists, MDs and therapists as well. Okay, so you've got experts involved in, in these offerings. It's not like you're just doing this, you know, making it up. You've got actual um, documented experts involved. Um, treatments for what? Therapy, therapy for, for what? What kind of conditions are you dealing with? Okay, so typically we see a lot of depression in its various forms, everything from treatment-resistant depression through chronic depression. We treat a lot of anxiety, um, 
individuals that have an end-of-life diagnosis and have end-of-life anxiety, we treat as well. Uh, we treat cluster headaches, migraine headaches, fibromyalgia, PTSD, and all, uh, something that comes up a lot is a lot of childhood trauma and sexual abuse as well. Okay. Um, we're talking about microdosing here primarily. That's what we always hear about. Like, how does the dosing work? How do you know how much to give a person? What's the process there? Okay, um, small correction. We actually do what's called macrodosing. Okay. So a microdose, a microdose is typically about one-tenth of a dried gram of mushrooms, and it's what's known as subperceptual. You won't have any effects or wouldn't yes, feel any right. effects of it. You just feel more centered and grounded. Uh, macrodoses. So um, with these three doses throughout the week, um, there is no one-size-fits-all. It used to be that the research institutes would try and give you about 35 milligrams of psilocybin in synthesized form, every 70 kilograms in body weight, but that's largely off. Um, so our first dose consists of a low dose of between three and four dry grams. That enables our guests to have an experience for the first time and dip their toe in the water. Uh, the second dose will go a lot higher. That helps us to calibrate a little bit more accurately into the seven or eight or nine gram range. And we can be up to the high teens, 15, 16 grams by the end of the week. But largely, um, there is no one-size-fits-all. It depends upon what the condition is that we're treating, how long has somebody had that condition for, uh, how acute is it, um, and these kind of criteria. So everybody's different, and then we track that throughout the week, um, and that dictates how, how much we dose any given individual as to how they respond. Um, and is it done, I'm assuming, under pretty strict supervision with professionals monitoring the experience? Absolutely. So the original um, research work done by Johns Hopkins and various other institutes all produced um, excellent clinical practice manuals and protocols. So we took those, we adapted them for group work. Um, like I say, we have 12 guests on average per retreat and all of them are licensed medical or mental health professionals with many hundreds, if not thousands of hours of experience working with psychedelics. Um, and, I mean, the expectation here, and we know there's a lot of progress and there's a lot of really, really good news about the way these things are, are being used to treat uh, different conditions. I mean, this could be a multi-billion dollar industry at some point, correct? Absolutely. It's certainly, I mean, as I'm looking at all the research, it's certainly looking that way. And it's not just the therapeutic side. There's the people that want to produce products, be they tinctures or other types of products you can produce. There's the cultivation size, uh, side of things. There's the biopharma side of things. There's the actual therapeutic application uh, to somebody, whether it's in the States or Canada or here in Jamaica on retreat for a week. And then there's all the ongoing integration therapy that happens for a guest or a patient once they've had their experience as well. So it's certainly looking to swell into the billions of dollars. And in some recent research I was reading, um, by the time psilocybin is rescheduled federally in the U.S. and Canada and Europe, um, there's a shortage right now of about thirty to 50,000 trained psychedelic clinicians okay if someone's listening and says you know what i think this is i've heard good things about this i've tried it i might want to get involved what's the cost and what's the process in getting involved in something like this absolutely so the cost ranges anywhere at the cheaper end from four and a half four and a half thousand us dollars for a week for a shared room right the way to our very high end which is twenty three thousand dollars per week also for a shared room as well. Uh, we have a very ex extensive application process uh, where we are required to understand an individual's personal mental health history and medical history of medications. That application form is screened by a, um, a psychologist or a therapist, 
and we deny about 25 to 30% of all applications, uh, which I'm happy to talk about in a moment as well. So once the application form has been done, people can then look on our website, pick a retreat, uh, retreat date schedule, and go ahead and book. Um, is there any risk to the person who's traveled from Canada to Jamaica for the express purpose of doing something like this? Is there any legal ramifications they could face? Absolutely none that I'm aware okay. of because they're using these substances in a country where it's legal. Okay, so just fill out the application and pick a date. Absolutely. And we're actually booked a few months in advance. It's huge demand for what we do out here. Amazing. Amazing. Justin, I know there's a lot of interest on the text line and people phoning in, so I, I appreciate you uh, sharing some time with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.